James chapter 1, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 4. These are the words of God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Uh, James is an interesting book with uh, respect to organization, at least for the purposes of any kind of cogent outline. It's, it's kind of challenging to create. James frequently shifts uh, his uh, train of thought or the issues that he's addressing from one to another rather quickly. It's actually uh, reminiscent in many ways of the Proverbs and wisdom literature at large. And that has led many scholars to conclude that, that James is kind of the New Testament wisdom literature. It's just an interesting book. There are uh, some normal features to this book. There is a, an opening to the book. There is a body to the book. But there is no conclusion to the book, which leads all kinds of, to all kinds of speculation. Uh, James just kind of abruptly ends by saying, turn people away from sin and you save them. Okay, and then it's just, it's just over. Um, but it's really the body of the book that, that is the complicated piece to organize. Um, although... Although it does, again, have the opening, the way the, the, the body is structured is interesting. So here's, here's how it lays out. The body begins with a call for uh, readers to remain faithful in the midst of trials, uh, in any trial that they're facing, but in particular, it's dealing with uh, faith trials. So a trial based on what you believe. That's found in chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. James then offers practical uh, guidelines for a life lived by faith. And we see this from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 3, verse 12. Now, as we zoom into that in particular, James is actually concerned with one, believers neglecting the care for the disadvantaged. That would be believers neglecting care for the poor. Uh, we see that in chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. Number two, failing to take action towards other believers. How many of you know that we're supposed to do good to all people. How many of you know we're supposed to do good, especially to the household of faith, right? And so James actually addresses this in the second part of this section, chapter 2, verse 14 through verse 26. And then three, he deals with controlling the tongue, which is uh, vile, right? Our, our tongue is, a, is an unruly evil, the scripture says, or James says, and that's found in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now, there's another large section of the book. While James is going through this, it's really random. And so that's what makes it very hard to outline it. Uh, but number th uh, the next large section of this is found in chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 6. And James deals with wisdom in action through this broad section. So if we look at what I just talked about, we were dealing with faith in action. Then we move to this section, which is actually wisdom in action. In the wisdom in action section, James shows how um, those who profess to be wise are actually, uh, it's really important that those who profess to be wise are not arrogant, they're not boastful, and this is a really important uh, kind of elaboration to the point. They are not to be selfishly ambitious, 
I think there is an idea in Christian circles that Christians can't be ambitious. Christians can be ambitious, but the challenge is that you can't be selfishly ambitious. And there is a distinction in those things. Um, the contrast to that is that Christians should be pure, Christians should be humble, and Christians should be peaceful. Did you hear that? Christians should be humble, Christians should be pure, and Christians should be peaceful. And that's a really big trick right now, especially in political world, right? So uh, James then finally brings all of this back around and he counsels readers to be patient inside of their suffering. He, he asks them to be patient inside of their suffering and that they are to rely on both God and one another. How many of you know we do need God to make it through? We do need God. You can't bring that up. Or two, this is really important. How many of you know we need each other? Amen. How many of you uh, don't want to raise your hand right now? Good, I'm glad you raised your hand because you don't want to raise your hand, but the, it's a trick there. But anyway, the idea is that we actually need God and we need each other, and so James talks about that. So in conjunction with the first four verses that I read at the outset, what I want to do now is I want, to, to, uh, I want you to listen to the bookend to, um, to this great book, uh, the bookend that talks about uh, struggles and trials and those things, and I want you to hear what James says about our actions in the midst of it, okay? So James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20, these two are the words of God. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Say that word with me out loud. Patient. Yes. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Can I get an amen? Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. If anyone among you is suffering, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Well, he must sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him too. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. 
Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I say we pray for no more snow. Just throwing that out, right? Verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, this is the strange, abrupt ending of the book of James. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This morning, I want to talk to you about one thing in particular. I'm calling it the process of trials. The process of trials. That process is going to be broken into three subsections. The first thing that we're going to cover is how we're to look at trials. That is, what is our disposition towards a trial? How many of you know trials are coming? How many of you know you're already probably in one? Okay, they are promised to believers. So how are we to look at trials? What is, it, what is our disposition towards them? Number two, what is the purpose of trials? That is, what do they do or what do they produce inside of us? And finally, number three, uh, I want to I ask the question, what are we to do while we're enduring a trial? What is it that you and I are supposed to do while we walk through it? So, uh, spoiler alert for that one is that it requires a lot of prayer and a lot of patience. So, number one, how do we look at trials? How do we look at trials? This is going to mess with us a little bit, to be honest. Um, I don't, let's, just, let's just go with some questions right off the bat. How many of you just love trials? Mark is lying to me right now, and Emmy followed suit, so that was just amazing. I love it. Okay, I do too. No, okay, so none of us love trials, that's right, okay? None of us love trials. Uh, What would you say if I told you that you need to start loving them? Because that's what I'm about to tell you. You need to start loving them. Listen to me clearly. Starting again at verse 2, James says this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, this is one of those commands that the scripture gives that we either didn't know existed, wish wasn't there, or we ignore it because it just seems absolutely absurd. For those of you who think it's absurd, wait, there's more. It gets better for you, right? Here's the deal. If we dissect the phrase a little bit further, what phrase am I talking about? I'm talking about the consider it all joy. If we dissect that phrase a little bit further, it gets hard to accept because here's what the phrase actually says. Consider it nothing but joy to face a trial. That's just stupid, <laughs> right? Right? Sorry, Lord. <laughs> throwing that out there. Consider it nothing but joy. Oh, even better. Listen to this rendering of the exact same words. Consider it a supreme joy when you encounter various trials. A supreme joy. Okay, how many of you love trials? Nobody's raising their hands. How many of you are ready to jump up and down with your next trial? Still no hands raised. Still no hands raised, but we have to get there. You see, my version of the Bible, which would be the Nathan International Version, that would be the accurate NIV. I'm copywriting that anyway. So the Nathan International Version would say something like this. Uh, Consider it anything but joy 
anything but joy when trials come. And, hold on, the verse goes further, and let your facial expressions, your speech, and your body language alert everyone around you to how miserable your life is. Okay? Oh, but there's more. And if you can make a Facebook post about it, do that too. There's my way in trial. That's my Bible version. Okay? Isn't that right, Roger? It's exactly, you can't find it. Yes, you're not going to find it because that's absurd. And yet that's the way we live, right? That's my version and that's not the Bible's version. Of course, my rendering misses some very important points. Uh, It does so on two levels. First, it uh, misinterprets the term joy, which we do often. And I'm going to share with you what that is today. So it misinterprets the word joy. And second, it's because I still don't have the end in mind when it comes to trials. And because I don't have the end in mind, and because I don't have a purpose in a trial, I actually just see trials as random. I see them as Darn it, why did that happen to little old me? Right? Ah, but those things happen for a reason. Not all things happen for a reason. I can't stand that statement. But many things, and especially trials, do absolutely happen for a reason. What James is referring to when he talks about joy, church, is actually defined as an extended state of well-being. Would you say that with me? An extended state of well-being. That's your definition for joy. And you need to write it down. And you need to put it on your mirror. And you need to understand what it is. Because when you want joy, what you're asking for is, again, an extended state of well-being. Rather than our version of joy, which seems to be uh, feelings of happiness and or pleasure. That's what you've defined joy as. That's what I've defined joy as. The definition of joy is not what we think it is, happiness or pleasure. And again, a misdefined version of joy uh, is something that would throw everything else after that. So please hear me. The Bible is not saying that we should act happy and try to take pleasure in trials. That's really important for you to know. You're not to actually just smile and go, oh boy, I love it. Oh boy, I love it. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. all. This would make no sense. Why? Because happiness and pleasure are not the same thing as joy. How many of you, uh, when you face trials, get frustrated or get upset or ask the question why or those things? How many of you do that? You're normal. Thank you. That is what you're supposed to do. That's what I do. anything other than that. It's actually suggesting something different. So think about this. How would the Bible not be contradicting itself when on one hand it tells us that Jesus's sweat had become like drops of blood. Notice this. The Bible says like drops of blood. It doesn't say blood. So it was like drops of blood due to anguish on the Mount of Olives. You can read that for yourself in Luke 22, 44. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So with our definition of, these, uh, of joy, these don't actually go together, do they? So was Jesus in anguish before the cross, looking forward to the cross, or was he joyful? 
Jesus was in anguish, and Jesus was for the joy, true joy set before him, uh, wanting to endure the cross. The reason there's no contradiction is because the authors of the Bible actually know what their terms mean, and we don't. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that for the extended state of well-being, for the extended state of well-being set before Jesus, he actually went through everything that the cross brought to him. Uh, Not because Jesus just enjoyed crucifixion or it made him happy. So what's the extended state of well-being that Jesus endured the cross for? Well, believe it or not, it's actually my ability and your ability to endure through trials. Wait a second, Nathan. I I thought Jesus endured the cross for salvation. I thought he endured the cross for eternity. Uh, Those things are implied in the Bible. But Hebrews tells us specifically why he did it right after it says that he endured the cross and its shame. Look at what verse 3 of Hebrews 12 says. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that, purpose statement follows, the reason why he faced this shame and this pain was for this purpose so that you will not grow weary and lose heart well guess what church you don't grow weary in the great by and by you don't lose heart in eternity these are issues that are only for now So why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he endure its shame? Why did he have joy inside of that? Because he knew that through his example and what he would give to us, we would finally be empowered to be able to endure and face trial like him ourselves. It's clear that our most extended state of well-being will be eternity with our Heavenly Father. But the joy that Jesus had as he endured the cross and its shame, was that the power of the Holy Spirit that he would soon pour out on all flesh because he sat at the right hand of the Father, that through that Spirit, he would give us a greater power to endure every trial in this life, no matter what, and that we don't have to lose heart. We don't have to lose heart. We lose heart, though, church, Uh, because we don't get the truth of what God is saying. We're not paying attention to what the Bible is actually saying. Or we do this. We read a lot of commentaries on a lot of people's opinions, and we don't go back to what the words on the page say. I say this all the time. How many of you have a Bible with a commentary in it? Usually it's a Bible with a black line at the bottom and then there's some verbiage at the bottom to help you walk through things. How many of you have Bibles like that? Yeah. Everything above the black line is inspired and everything below the black line is an opinion. Just remember it, right? Everything above the black line is inspired. Everything below the black line is an opinion and therefore needs to always be scrutinized. Doesn't matter how much you trust the person that you bought the Bible of, you know, with their signature on it, which I still don't get. How do Christians do that, right? So you have to make sure that you trust the words on the page. Hebrews 1 and 12, 1 and 2 is followed by Hebrews 12, 3, and it tells us why specifically Jesus endured the cross. So how are we to look at trial? The same exact way Jesus did, church. 
We're to look at trial the same way Jesus did, with eyes wide open to the pain and to the frustration and even sometimes to the shame that we'll endure when we face it. Jesus wasn't confused. He wasn't lost on this, right? But, and this is a big but, because the trials we're talking about have to do with our faith, there is always an extended state of well-being that we are looking forward to. If the trial has to do with your faith, there's always a joy at the end. There's always a joy at the end. I say this all the time. God is more concerned with your holiness than he is with your happiness. Some of you are paying attention, right? He's more concerned with your holiness than he is with your happiness. And when you're going through this pushing for holiness and pushing for what God says is right, the beautiful truth is there's joy at the end of it. I think about Paul and Silas in prison when I'm going through these kinds of things. Singing and praising God while in prison. How many of you love that story? Like, that's just not going to be me. I don't get what's going on there, right? Does Does a story like Paul and Silas singing in prison mean that they were happy about being put in jail for their faith? No, it doesn't mean they were happy about being put in jail for their faith. Uh, At another point, Paul actually appeals uh, to his Roman citizenship to get away from a painful beating for his faith. Nobody loves that. You're not supposed to love it. Nobody said you should love it. But if you read joy wrong, you're going to think that's what it says. That's not what it's saying right? So Paul and Silas are singing and they're praising God because they have an extended state of well-being, aka joy, and they know what it looks like. That is that they belong to a greater kingdom. Amen? That's the kind of joy that we're supposed to have. And we can do that through all trials. That's our disposition towards trial and towards pain. This is also why James tells us to consider the prophets and to consider Job in James 5, 10 through 11. I just read that. This is a truth that we need to hear, church. The level of trial we may face, brace yourself, the level of trial that we may face could be on par with Job and it could be on par with the prophets. And by the way, they killed the prophets. But even through that, We're to consider it a supreme joy. Okay, show of hands. How many of you are looking forward to that next trial? Still haven't convinced you, have I? Sam's ready. (laughs) Sam's ready. You want, see, you got to hear this. It was amazing. So the uh, Tootsie Roll pop, Tootsie Roll sucker, uh, the commercial was always, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll? Tootsie pop or whatever it was. Sam says to me this morning, she goes, I know exactly how long it takes to get through one sucker. I said, how long? She goes, three quarters of your sermon. (laughs) I'm not joking. I don't even know where this kid comes up with this stuff. She said, so is it going to be a short sermon? I said, get two suckers. Anyway, so, so here's a side note. Here's a side note. Trials are not the same as temptation. Do you hear me? Trials are not the same as, attempt, as temptation. The reason that I have to say this is because although God cannot be tempted and God does not tempt, James 1.13, God absolutely does send trials our way. It's fascinating to me that Christians are shocked when they, when they face trials 
Uh, Peter's going to say this just in a little bit. We're going to read a passage where he says, don't be shocked by this fiery ordeal that you're dealing with. It's, it's crazy to me that Christians are shocked by this, probably because all they've ever heard is a prosperity gospel message that says if you give your life to Jesus, everything will go well. That's just stupid. It doesn't, that doesn't happen, right? So people are shocked at the trial, but then it astounds me that Christians are even more shocked when they learn that God might have actually purposed the trial or sent the trial. You want to know why we don't, we don't embrace this? Number one, we don't understand the character of God. And number two, we don't understand the end of a trial, what God is doing, right? Who disciplines you? Doesn't the Lord discipline you? Isn't he the one who drops the hammer at times? And why does he do that? To show you that he loves you and to get you back on track. So the same God who disciplines you is also the God who will send a trial in your life, allow that trial, cause that trial at times, so that you will be shaped and you will be molded. Job understood this. He had to learn it the hard way. But Job's line, the the infamous line that he gives, is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job understood it. We struggle with this. Temptation is not something God will give. But trial is. Trial will be something God brings. It is something that God will do. So I just want you to think on that. I want you to understand that because you can't every time you face a trial go, Lord, what is happening to me? You have to instead run to him or abide deeper in him and say, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? What is this supposed to be helping me with, Lord? So number two, what is the purpose of a trial? This is where it's going to start to answer our questions a little bit better. What do trials accomplish? James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 again. Consider it all joy. What a joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be and lacking in nothing. James is clear, church. Trial produces endurance. Endurance produces perfection and completeness. This is just code word biblically for maturity. And the result of that is people who lack nothing. Because what comes with maturity? Wisdom, understanding, the ability to to gauge a situation, to be able to process through things in life and to do so in a godly manner. The term endurance uh, expresses a growing determination in the face of adversity based on hope because we always have hope. Our hope is a greater hope than this world has. Uh, Those who suffer can express joy during times of trial because their confidence is in the day which uh, is in a day in which Christ will vindicate them. How many of you know Jesus is returning? I hope you all raise your hand on this one. You guys are killing me with this. I'm not raising my hand for you, Nathan. Okay, so the Apostle Peter reminds us of this. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. 
Just make sure you know the first century church was surprised at fiery ordeals too, right? You're not alone. We just need to get past it at some point, right? It's been 2,000 years. Let's get over that, right? So do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. For your testing? I don't, I don't like this, Lord. As though something strange were happening to you. In other words, don't be surprised. This isn't strange. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, that is, if you're facing a trial for your faith, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Why? Because you're facing that trial precisely because you belong to him and he's shaping you and molding you to something better. The disciples lived this thing out when we see it in Acts chapter 5, verse 41 and 42. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer. How many of you feel that it's awesome to suffer? How many of you consider yourself worthy of Jesus because you suffered? Yeah, we, we don't think right. But they considered it amazing that that was the case. They considered themselves worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. When they faced suffering, they didn't retreat. They kept going. They advanced inside of the kingdom of God. Paul expands on all of this in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here's what God's word says again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, so we exalt in the hope of the glory of God, but we also exalt in this, right? We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, this is back to why Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, to send his Spirit, so that we, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13, Uh, three can overcome trial and adversity he has poured out his spirit in our hearts who was given to us the spirit of god so those who are suffering should have joy james chapter 1 verse 2 because trials serve as a path to christian maturity how many of you would like to be mature how many of you know there's no easy way to get there There's no easy way to get there. The world is filled with, you can go on YouTube and you can look for a a hack to life on this and that, a cheat on this to that. You will never find a hack in the Christian life. You will never find a cheat to the Christian life. What it requires is the most challenging thing for humans to do, and that is surrender. And that's an everyday thing. And guess who's the worst at it? I am. I don't know how to surrender. Not the way God calls me to. Not the way I ought to. I struggle with it repeatedly. And hey guys, I'm a professional Christian. Right? This should be easy. No, it's not easy. It doesn't matter who you are. So complete and mature individuals are to show integrity and single-minded devotion to God. 
they're characterized by godliness. So how many of you want to lack nothing? The answer uh, is uh, most of us would say yes to this. Well, it takes maturity. Maturity takes endurance. Endurance requires trial. There's no easy way out of this. There's no easy way through this. Number three, what do we do inside of our trials? Now, I'm just going to get extremely candid with you and practical here. This is, where the, this is where the rubber meets the road in many ways for me. Okay, so first of all, how should, you, uh, how should you look at a trial? You should look at it with great joy because it's producing something in you, okay? Um, what do you do in, um, what does that trial produce? Maturity. It produces a godly life. So number three, while maturity is being produced, what is it that we're supposed to do? What do we do inside of these trials? Back to James 5, starting at verse 7. And please follow along with me. I want you to underline things. I want you to take notes if you need to. But please track these specific actions. Therefore, verse 7, therefore be... So what are we supposed to do? Number one, we're supposed to be patient. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. How long is that supposed to last? Yeah, it's been 2,000 years so far. We have no idea when Jesus is returning. doesn't matter what the internet preacher or prophet tells you. The truth is we're one day closer than we were yesterday, but that's pretty much any, all that anybody knows. Yes? So what are we to do now? Be patient. Be patient. How many of you love that one? Like, I love trials and I love patience. Well, you're an anomaly in all of life, right? Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. And that's all uh, prophetic talk for the earlier and latter rain, right? Uh, you too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. How long ago was James written? Somewhere before 62 AD. <laughs> so that'll tell you something, right? Okay, so step one that we're supposed to do in trials, in these uh, hard times while we are growing in maturity, is be patient. Number two, verse nine. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. How many of you know that when you go through trial, the natural tendency that you have is to start complaining and bickering and fighting? Husbands and wives, can I talk to you for a second, <laughs> right? How many of you know that when money issues hit, how many of you know that when life gets hard, the first tendency you have is to start fighting with each other and taking it out on each other? I need some amens right now because you guys are all lying to me, okay? Okay, so this is trying. This is what happens. In the Christian life, it's worse, in the Christian life, what happens, and this is why James later goes on to watch your tongue, because in the Christian life, what we do is we complain against our brothers and sisters. And you know how this presents itself inside of the church? It presents itself like this. Well, you know, pastor, sometimes he's just hard to deal with. Thanks for complaining about me. I don't need your help convincing people that I'm horrible, right? I don't need any help in this. But our complaining against each other does not help us in our, uh, in our movement towards unity, does it? No, it actually does the opposite. And so what we do is we just gripe and complain. Did you hear what so-and-so did? 
Do you believe that that's the way they treat their family? Do you believe that that's what they think about theology? Do you believe that they believe that? Welcome to the Christian world of today. All we do is gripe and complain. Here's what we're supposed to be doing, though, guys. We're supposed to be enduring trial. Why? Because it's actually joyful. And it's joyful because of the hope that it produces. The hope that it produces is maturity and godliness. The reason why we should want all of these things is because we want to look more like our king. In the meantime, we actually derail our progress because instead of embracing it and growing and maturing, we just start complaining and bickering and fighting with each other. And then everybody in the world looks on us and goes, you guys just look stupid, right? You look like everybody else. Yeah, it's true. So step one in trial, patience. Step two, stop complaining about each other. This was my definition, or this was the definition of gossip I was given a long time ago. If you are talking to somebody who is neither part of the problem nor the solution, you're gossiping. Right? If you're talking to somebody who's neither part of the problem nor the solution, you're gossiping. And most likely, you're also complaining about them. Okay? So knock it off. Doesn't matter what they're doing. Love them. Love believes all things, right? I think that's what we ought to do. Amen? Yes. Yes, that's what we ought to do, okay? So, stop complaining about each other. Verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets. So, we're to be patient and not complain. That, who are we looking to? Job and the prophets. You should all do a study on the, on the prophets and Job uh, over the next several months and realize, wow, what kind of patience these people had to have had to endure the pain and the trials they faced. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you're facing trials, don't be pressured to give a commitment that's bigger than it is. In your trial, just say yes or just say no. If you go beyond this, what you do is you obligate yourself to something that you can't live up to. And trials already suck the life out of us. So just say yes and just say no. That's what James is telling us, right? Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. What are we supposed to do in the middle of trials? Pray. How many of you believe that that is the worst uh, spiritual discipline you have? It's definitely my worst spiritual discipline. And yet... All of my trials, what do I do? I run to Jesus all of a sudden. I should be running to him all the time. But in trial, I need to be running to him and I need to be saying, Lord, I need you to tell me what you're teaching me, not please get me out of this. Amen? Okay, so he says, if anyone of you is suffering, he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Paul and Silas. They're in jail. They're suffering. It's a trial. But what are they doing? They're singing and they're rejoicing. So I'm going to ask John to lead us every Sunday and say, listen, are you facing a trial? Good. Sing with us. Sing with us. You don't, you don't get to come into church and just be like, here again? Can we hurry up? Can we hurry up and get this on? How many of you feel that way? Be honest with me. Kim Duffy. <laughs> I'm teasing you, teasing you. How many of you feel that way? I feel that way. There's times. Guess what I'm supposed to do? Praise God. Be joyful and sing. 
because there's much that I have to be cheerful for. Verse 14, we're going to wrap it up. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So do we need each other? It's amazing. Call for the elders of the church. I can't tell you how many people I know believe that passage of Scripture, probably more than they believe anything else in Scripture. Anointing with oil, prayer of faith will heal the sick, and they hate the fact that you have to call for the elders of the church. (laughs) You either have to take the Bible or you have to leave it, okay? You don't get to pick and choose, right? So it's amazing what is happening here, but this is what we're called to. You're facing trial, run to God and run to his people. Run to God and run to his people. And he gives us a blueprint for it. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What else are we supposed to do in trials? Confess our sins. Why? Because when the heat gets turned up, you are even more likely to be an idiot, (laughs) right? Come on, that's King James there or something. Anyway, so, right, thou idioteth, right? Okay, so so there's, there's something in there about that. We're more prone to being an idiot. We need to confess our sins. We are more likely under pressure to fall short. All of us do it. So confess your sins. It says confess your sins one to another. It doesn't say confess your sins to the priest. It doesn't say confess your sins all to the pastor. It do, right? You are to confess your sins one to another. Allow each other to hold you accountable. That's what you're supposed to do. And you do all this in the midst of trial. Then verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured with rain. So we already said prayer has to be the case in the midst of trial. But what kind of prayer is this? Faithful prayer. Persistent prayer. How many of you pray once and then give up? I do. I'll be honest. I do. Right? How many of you pray twice and then give up? I'm just going to keep going because I know that it's not as persistent as we like to claim it is. But we're supposed to be persistent in our prayers. Verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Even in the midst of trials, we're supposed to be our brother's keeper. We're supposed to love each other. Amen? We're supposed to care for each other. So trials are coming, church. Trials are actually a supreme joy. They're supreme joy because they produce something great, endurance, which leads to maturity, which leads to us lacking nothing. And in the midst of that lacking nothing or in the midst of that journey that we're on, we need to be patient. We need to not bicker and fight with each other. We need to watch ourselves, confess our sins, hold each other accountable. We need to love each other.